From points across California, you're listening to the Disneyland edition of the Diz Unplugged. The Design Plug Disneyland Edition, episode 469 for the week of July 12, 2015. The Design Plug Disneyland Edition is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, helping you plan the perfect Disneyland vacation. Visit them on the web at www.dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. I am your host, Tom Bell, and I'm joined by my good friends, Nancy Johnson, Mary Jamalata Willie, and Michael Bowling. And in this segment, Michael continues his look at Disneyland history, celebrating the 60th anniversary, which is this week. I bet you have something special for us then, Michael, right? I do. Very special. We're going to take a look at Walt's last big project that he supervised. Okay. So so I call this Dixieland and Pixie Dust, New Orleans Comes to Disneyland. Hmm. So on New Year's Day, 1966, Walt Disney was seen by millions on television as the Grand Marshal of the Tournament of Roses Parade in Pasadena, California. To the generation, including myself, who knew Walt Disney from his weekly television series, he seemed little different. But those who worked closely with Walt could see changes. He had celebrated his 64th birthday in December, and his once limitless energies were beginning to wane. More and more, Walt complained he was feeling gimpy and that the day's activities had left him pooped. The old polo injury he had suffered as a young man had continually grown worse. Pain shot down his back and into his left leg, and the nightly treatments by studio nurse Hazel George no longer brought relief. Facial pain kept Walt awake at night as he applied hot compresses to his face for hours in an effort to relieve the pain. A chronic sinus problem required weekly treatments. He was subject to colds and walking pneumonia. He came down with a kidney ailment and entered St. John's Hospital in Santa Monica for examinations. Walt and Lillian spent more long weekends at their house in Smoke Tree Ranch in Palm Springs and sometimes remained a week. Walt had premonitions he would die before finishing his work, and all these illnesses seemed to reinforce this premonition. Late one evening at Disneyland, Walt had dinner with several of his key associates who had helped him build the park. As they walked to Walt's parking spot in a service area behind the town square firehouse, Walt commented, I really enjoyed that. It was one of the nicest evenings I've spent. His companions agreed, and one of them said, It was a good time. We'll have to arrange more just like it. No, Walt said, there won't be any more. Sure there will be, his companions said. No, I'm 64 now, and I'm not getting any younger, you know. His companions predicted many more years for Walt and more parties. No, I won't live forever, he said quietly. Let's just say this was a wonderful evening and I won't forget it. He climbed into his car and drove off. Walt grew closer to his family. He delighted in his grandchildren. Walt was pleased with the way both his sons-in-law were progressing with the company. A deeper bond seemed to develop between Walt and Lillian. 
Studio workers noted how they strolled hand in hand as he showed her a new movie set or the latest audio-animatronic wonder. Walt enjoyed teasing Lillian. She disapproved of his taking over the controls of the company plane on their cross-country flights, but he continued to do so. During a flight to Orlando, Walt went forward to the cockpit and told the pilot, Jim Stevenson, hand me the mic. Walt announced over the loudspeaker, this is your captain speaking. As expected, Lillian leapt up and started toward the front of the plane. No, not the captain. This is the commander-in-chief of the whole damned outfit. Walt also seemed closer to his brother Roy. Roy was wholeheartedly in favor of the Florida project, and he worked tirelessly finding the means to finance it. Despite that, Roy kept bringing up his wish to retire from active participation in the company. That was something Walt could not support. He actively plotted against Roy. He even resorted to ringing up Roy's wife, Edna, to remark, You don't want Roy hanging around the house all day, do you? In conversations with Roy, Walt argued it would be unthinkable for him to attempt the huge Florida undertaking without the daily support of Roy. As usual, Walt won. Roy postponed his plans for retirement. In frequent pain and impatient to get things done, Walt became more short-tempered at the studio, often snapping at people, then apologizing afterwards. Honors continued to pour in for Walt, and none pleased him more than having schools named after him. The first was in Tullytown, Pennsylvania, then in Marceline, Missouri, the third Walt Disney School was in Anaheim. Walt responded by inviting all the children in the school to be his guests for a day at Disneyland. Of course, it wouldn't be a real celebration unless you could come to Disneyland on a school day, said Walt, surprising school officials by declaring a school holiday. Despite his slackening energies, Walt seemed to accomplish more than ever before. He visited Wed daily to oversee the plan for the Florida Project and new attractions and developments for Disneyland. He worked on The Happiest Millionaire and viewed rushes on films and production. He continued planning Cal Arts. He appeared in television lead-ins and found time for a variety of charities and served on the boards of the Performing Arts Council of the Los Angeles Music Center and the California Angels baseball team. He devoted more time to animation and was very involved in the production of The Jungle Book. In July, Walt rented a 140-foot yacht for a cruise through British Columbia waters. Walt insisted the entire family go along on the 13-day voyage. Walt's physical condition worsened during the cruise. His voice grew huskier and his legs stiffened. His family noticed he had great difficulty getting in and out of boats. By the end of the trip, Walt was impatient to return to his work. Walt resumed his heavy schedule at the studio, but the pain grew worse. After the dedication of New Orleans Square on July 24th, he entered UCLA Medical Center for tests. X-rays revealed the calcification of the old polo neck injury had increased but an operation could help relieve the condition. Walt decided to wait until the end of the year because he had so much to do. A new project for Walt was the development of Mineral King 
Valley as a ski resort, which I've talked about on a previous segment and in a blog article on the Diz. California Governor Edmund G. Brown and Walt Disney were scheduled to announce plans for a new highway leading to the resort at a press conference at Mineral King on September 19th. Fair weather had been predicted, but gray clouds rolled over the Sierras, sending the temperature down to 20 degrees. The governor and press were delayed by the weather. Despite dressing warmly, Walt seemed affected by the cold. His face was drawn and deeply lined. When the press arrived, some remarked that Walt did not look well. Bob Jackson, who was handling public relations for the Mineral King Project, explained that the altitude and cold had caused Walt's pallor. Walt continued to be heavily involved in the planning of the Florida Project, now referred to as Disney World. Regular meetings were held in the Disney World Conference Room, the biggest at WED. Walt often came to the sessions with a paper napkin stuffed in his pocket. On the napkin would be notes and diagrams Walt had made over breakfast at home. In early October, Walt came to the Disney World planning meeting with a sketch. It was an outline of the Florida property. This is how we'll do it, Walt announced to the WED planners. His sketch, which was called the Seventh Preliminary Master Plot Plan, remained the basic pattern for developing the Florida project. On October 29th, Walt Disney flew east with his daughter Sharon and son-in-law Bob Brown to receive the American Forestry Association Award at Williamsburg, Virginia for outstanding service in conservation of America resources. Walt fretted over his speech for the awards banquet finally decided to ignore it and spoke extemporaneously about his own love of nature. When Walt returned to California, he realized he could no longer postpone surgery. His breath was short and the pain almost rendered his leg useless. On Wednesday, November 2nd, he entered St. Joseph's Hospital for more tests. This time, x-rays revealed a spot the size of a walnut on his left lung. Doctors insisted surgery was imperative. He returned to the studio on Thursday for his regular round of conferences. On Friday, Walt reviewed footage for the Gnome Mobile and watched the rushes of other films in production. Saturday, Walt rested. On Sunday morning, he drove himself to St. Joseph's Hospital. On the way, he stopped by Ron and Diane Disney Miller's new home and watched Ron play football with the neighborhood children for a few minutes. Walt waved to Ron and drove on. Surgery was scheduled for Monday morning. Walt didn't want any fuss made, and he told Lillian she shouldn't come to the hospital. But Diane insisted the family be there. So Diane, Sharon, and Lillian sat in the hospital waiting room to await the results of Walt's surgery. When the surgeon entered, he was grim-faced. He said the left lung had been cancerous and had been removed. The lymph nodes were oversized, and the outlook was poor. I would give him six months to two years to live, the surgeon said. The women were stunned, and Lillian seemed unwilling or unable to accept the news. When Diane returned to the hospital that night, she had somehow convinced herself that her father still had a chance, and she was able to face him hopefully. Her father was still in the intensive care unit, 
and he was beginning to regain consciousness. Were you there? he asked weakly. She nodded, and Walt said knowingly, Your mother was there too. When Lillian arrived, Walt was optimistic. Sweetheart, I'm a new man, he said. I've only got one lung, but otherwise I'm good as new. During his stay in the hospital, Walt seemed to regain some of his vigor, and he was cheerfully with family, was cheerful with family and visitors. During a visit with his nephew, Roy Edward Disney, Walt remarked, Whatever it is I've got, don't get it. After two weeks in the hospital, Walt grew bored and eager to return to work. The doctor said he could leave, and he telephoned Tommy Wilk to pick him up. Walt insisted on going to his office, and he read reports on the company's projects and had a few brief conferences. At lunchtime, he went to the Coral Room, the Walt Disney Studios' commissary restaurant. But rather than sitting at his usual table in the northeast corner, he joined the men at the web table. They were shocked by his appearance. Walt explained that part of his left lung had been removed and it had been cancerous, but he was certain he would be back to normal as soon as he got some rest. Talking about the illness seemed to bore Walt, so he inquired about the projects at WED. After lunch, he accompanied his staff to the WED building to look at the projects in progress. He asked Roger Brogy about the status of the Pirates of the Caribbean attraction. It had been completed and shipped to the park, Brogy reported, but more tests were needed. The business faction of the company was pressing for a Christmas opening. Brogy? Don't you tell them that you can do it. That show isn't ready, Walt insisted. Walt sat down to talk with Mark Davis, who had been with him from the creative years of the early features through the imagineering of Disneyland and Disney World. Walt laughed heartily at the sketches Mark had drawn for an audio-animatronic bear band show at Mineral King. Walton Davis, along with Dick Irvine, John Hench, and other wet Imagineers, inspected a mock-up of a Moonride attraction. Walt made suggestions for improvements. He then turned to Irvine and said, I'm getting kind of tired. Do you want to take me back to the studio? Walt walked to the door and turned to Mark Davis to say, Goodbye, Mark. Davis had never heard Walt say goodbye before. Walt returned to the studio on Tuesday and Wednesday, holding meetings and visiting departments. He dropped in on the set of Blackbeard's Ghost and surprised producer Bill Walsh. I thought you were across the street at the hospital, Walt, said Walsh. Walt remarked that the surgeons had removed a rib to get at a problem, some damn thing they're fooling around with. He spoke to the director, Robert Stevenson, about the film's progress, then he left. There was one last goodbye. Studio nurse Hazel George had sent Walt a get-well card in the hospital with the note, I'll see you later in the laughing place. On what would be his final day at the studio, Walt sent for her, and they met in the room where they had spent hundreds of hours talking and laughing about a myriad of studio matters whilst she treated him for his chronic pain. Well, here we are in the laughing place, Walt said. There's something I want to tell you, but the words wouldn't come. Instead, they embraced each other, weeping. The following day was Thanksgiving, and Lillian drove Walt to Ron and Diane's home for an afternoon dinner. 
Walt enjoyed being amongst the grandchildren and watching movies of their Canadian voyage earlier in the year. In a talk with Ron, Walt said, Boy, I had the biggest scare of my life. Even though I'd had warnings all these years, I never thought it would happen to me. Walt admitted he would have to slow his down his pace. I'm going to turn over the picture-making to you producers. I think you guys can work as a team, because you've been showing it for the past three years. I'm going to devote all my time to Disney World and Epcot. He added with a grin, that doesn't mean I'm not going to read those scripts. Walt thought he might feel better if he went to the desert, and he and Lillian flew to Palm Springs. But they stayed only one night at the Smoke Tree Ranch House. Walt grew weaker, and he returned to St. Joseph's Hospital on November 30th. Walt was beginning to fail more quickly than doctors had anticipated. Cobalt treatments diminished his strength and took away his appetite. He grew concerned about the future of his family and ordered his personal attorney to sell a block of Disney stock for Diane's benefit. When she asked why, Walt said, Kid, I'm worried about you and Ron with that big mortgage to pay for. Roy brought him reports of developments in the company, and Ron told him of good business for Follow Me Boys at the Radio City Music Hall in New York City. Walt enjoyed the visits with his family, but sometimes wanted to be alone, as if he didn't want Lillian and the girls to see him in pain. He was growing weaker, and the drugs sometimes made him confused. His 65th birthday fell on December 5th, but he was too ill for any celebration. His strength continued to wane, and his voice became weak and raspy. On the afternoon of December 14th, Lillian visited Walt and then phoned Diane to say, Oh, he's so much better. He got out of bed. He kept putting his arms around me, and his grip was so strong. I know he's going to get well. I know he's going to be all right. Roy visited him that evening, and Walt seemed weak but lucid. Walt and Roy talked about the company business, and Walt was intent on discussing Disney World and Epcot. He stared at the ceiling, which was covered with foot-square acoustical tiles, and he raised a hand to point out the design of the property. Roy, too, was encouraged by Walt's appearance, and he remarked to Edna that night that he thought Walt had a good chance to recover. After Walt began the next morning on December 15, 1966, Walt Disney passed away at 9.30 of an acute circulatory collapse, according to the death certificate. Walt was robbed of his opportunity to see the realization of Disney World and Epcot, the city of tomorrow, and the completion of several Disneyland attractions still on the drawing boards. It is often said the significance of an event can be measured by how well people remember what they were doing at the time of the occurrence. For those who were alive, who doesn't remember what they were doing when they heard the news of the assassination of John F. Kennedy, the Challenger explosion, or the attacks on 9-11? Those who worked for Walt Disney and those who were captivated by his imagination and creativity will always remember the passing of Walter Elias Disney. Surprisingly, the studio was unprepared for Walt's passing. 
Marty Scalar was quickly called into a meeting and given one hour to write a one-page press release announcing Walt's death and to portray all that Walt Disney had meant to the company, its employees, stockholders, and the world. Sorrow, shock, and disbelief encircled the globe. Newspapers in every country reported the news of Walt Disney's death, and citizens everywhere felt the loss. Presidents, premiers, and kings expressed their sympathy, and editorials proclaimed Disney's achievements. The Los Angeles Times called him Aesop with a magic brush, Anderson with a color camera, Barry, Carol, Prokofiev, Harris with a genius touch that brought to life the creatures they had created. No man in show business has left a richer legacy. The London Times reported that he produced work of incomparable artistry and of touching beauty. A Paris newspaper said, All the children in the world are in mourning, and we have never felt so close to them. Another in Holland called Walt Disney a king who reigned for several decades over the fantasy of children in all the world. A Mexico City paper reported the sadness of the country's children, and more than one tear was seen in the eyes of grown men. Disney was described by an editorialist in Turin as a poet-magician who brought the world a fable alive. His friend Dwight D. Eisenhower commented, His appeal and influence were universal, not restricted to this land alone, for he touched a common chord in all humanity. We shall not soon see his like again. From the White House, President Lyndon B. Johnson wrote to Lillian, It is a sad day for America and this world when a beloved artist leaves us. Millions of us lived a brighter and happier life by the light of your husband's talents. We mourn him and miss him with you. Mrs. Johnson and I pray that you will find some comfort in the knowledge that beauty, joy, and truth are immortal. The magic of Walt Disney was larger than life, and the treasures he left will endure to entertain and enlighten worlds to come. The news of Walt's passing was shattering to everyone in the Disney organization, in the studio, at WED, at Disneyland, and in the growing outpost in Florida, and in the Buena Vista offices throughout the world. Everyone had felt Walt's presence as the guiding intellect of the company. Now it was time for Roy to assume control and maintain Walt's vision. The news hit Disneyland like a thunderbolt. There was great confusion as flags went to half-mast, then to full-mast, then back to half again. Some wanted to recognize Walt's death by closing the park. Others cited show business tradition. He would have wanted the show to go on. Tradition prevailed, and Disneyland sadly carried on. The funeral was as Walt had specified, private. The body was cremated, and only the immediate family was present for the simple service at Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Glendale on the day after he passed. Instead of flowers, the family requested contributions be made to the California Institute of the Arts, Cal Arts. The company had to be run the Disney way, and Roy, who had been trying to retire, reluctantly took full charge at the age of 73. 
He acquainted himself with the workings of WED and ordered the planning for Florida to continue without any delay. Film production would be handled by a committee of those who had worked closely with Walt. Card Walker, Ron Miller, Roy E. Disney, Bill Anderson, Bill Walsh, Winston Hibbler, Jim Agar, and Harry Title. Roy admitted that a committee was not the best way to run an organization. But we will have to do it that way until the new leadership develops. In the press release announcing Walt Disney's passing, Marty Scalar wrote, We are in the creative business, and we are going to press on. And press on they did. The first new land at Disneyland since its opening in 1955 was also the last project Walt supervised. Disneyland has always had a big river and a Mississippi steamwheeler. It made sense to build a new attraction at the bend of the river. And so New Orleans came into being, a New Orleans of the century ago when she was the gay Paris of the American frontier, said Walt at the dedication of his brand new New Orleans Square. New Orleans definitely had a lot to do with Disney's history. For example, Walt and his wife Lillian loved to go antique shopping, and Royal Street in New Orleans had some of the best antique shops in the world. Walt came up with the idea for audio animatronics from a mechanical bird he purchased in New Orleans while shopping with Lillian. Also, after flying over the swamplands in Florida where Walt Disney World is today, Walt touched down to refuel in New Orleans and learned about the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Frontierland always had its southern airs. Long before New Orleans Square came to be, southern-style architecture dominated the edges of Frontierland. Wrought iron balconies graced the exterior of Aunt Jemima's kitchen, and across the river, the swift chicken plantation restaurant stood like a stately mansion. Walt Disney realized that a historical New Orleans-type background would fit perfectly toward a few new attractions wed designers were planning for Disneyland. These new attractions included a haunted house, a thieves' marketplace, and a pirate wax museum. Due to an earlier expansion of the Jungle Cruise, which took over the Magnolia Park area where New Orleans Square was to be built, the only remaining land left for New Orleans Square was a small, horseshoe-shaped piece of land, which was not nearly large enough for all the ideas Walt and his Imagineers had for this area. To fit everything, the future site of the haunted house was moved north to the site of the Swift Chicken Plantation Restaurant. In this new concept for New Orleans Square, the big attraction would be the Blue Bayou Mart a themed enclosed area where guests would always find a breezy summer night as they strolled through the thieves' market or dined in an elegant restaurant overlooking the bayou. The brave-hearted could venture deep down into the dark, dank basement and walk through the Pirates' Wax Museum. Construction began in 1961. New Orleans Square and the Haunted House are scheduled to open in just two years. The Haunted House rose on schedule in 1963, but not quite as Walt had planned. A peek inside would reveal the house was actually a hollow shell, and the nearby New Orleans Square was just an empty basement with structural steel 
behind a large wooden construction fence. <clears throat> For guests who peeked through the cracks in that fence, it didn't appear as if much was going on. I was one of those impatient youngsters who stared in fascination at the steel structure from the top of the Swiss Family Robinson treehouse and wondered why there was no progress for four years. However, this lack of activity didn't mean the Imagineers were taking it easy. After completion of steel framework for the New Orleans Square basement work stopped on the project, Walt Disney pulled his Imagineers off New Orleans Square to work on the 1964-65 New York World's Fair. Walt was planning bigger things for his wed Imagineers. Disney was creating several attractions for companies to sponsor in the fair. For stories about Walt Disney and the World's Fair, please listen to my previous 60 Years of Disneyland segment, The World's Fair Comes to Disneyland. Even though the fair brought a halt on new attractions at Disneyland, it was good for two reasons. Firstly, all the sponsor companies wanted state-of-the-art attractions, which would have the, have the added benefit of helping Walt Disney Productions advance in the field of the theme park industry. And secondly, as part of the agreement when the World's Fair was over, all the attractions would be shipped back to Disneyland. When work was finished on It's a Small World, Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln, the Primeval World Exhibit, and General Electric's Carousel of Progress, construction resumed on New Orleans Square. When work restarted, Walt told his Imagineers to take what they learned from the World's Fair projects and put it into the new attractions in New Orleans Square. With this new perspective, it quickly became apparent there were numerous problems with the earlier concepts of the New Orleans Square attractions. Plus, it was now apparent that with Disneyland's growing attendance, walkthrough attractions were no longer feasible or efficient. So Walt decided all the plans for New Orleans Square had to be scrapped, along with most of that structural steel I'd been looking at for four years from the top of the treehouse. The design process was restarted. It was an expensive decision, but it was the right decision. Happily, the work done for the World's Fair had provided Disney with new technology. Breakthroughs were made in the combination of sound and animation of three-dimensional figures. These audio animatronics were used extensively in great moments with Mr. Lincoln and the Carousel of Progress. As a result, those wax pirate figures could now be brought to life swinging their swords and shouting their threats. Not only would the pirates be moving, so would the guests. Instead of a walk-through museum, the new technology would take guests on a thrilling boat ride using a variation of the ride system developed for It's a Small World. Guests would ride in bateaus, the same type as the flat-bottom boats used in the swamps of the South. But facility architect Bill Martin did some calculations that disheartened some of the Imagineers. By the time we sent the boats down into the basement, he recalled, and allowed room for a ramp to bring them back up, there'll be no room left for the show. The space was very, very small and very tight, Claude Coates remembered. So Walt said, we're just going to have to go underneath the railroad track and build a big building outside the berm. So the crews began work tunneling under the Santa Fe and Disneyland railroad tracks and into the new show building which had been built on the former Holidayland site. The large New Orleans Square hole 
was converted into a tri-level structure, with three levels stacking on top of each other. The stacking did not start just at the beginning of the attraction. The other levels were used for shops and restaurants, the Blue Bayou, a members-only Club 33, and a cast-member-only cafeteria. Walt assigned Mark Davis to come up with a series of light-hearted pirate gags that would take advantage of the new audio-animatronic technology. Walt's idea of the cruise through Pirates of the Caribbean would take guests past scenes of drunken pirates pillaging a seacoast village before burning it to the ground. When Mark Davis started to work on the projects, he considered the attraction more like a horror film. I thought none of this is Disney, he said. But when I started reading everything I could find on pirates, I found that damn few of them were ever killed in sea battles like we'd always heard. Most of them lost their lives by venereal disease picked up in brothels. (laughs) Davis was probably the best choice to help turn the X-rated story material into G-rated family fun at Disneyland. He soon filled his office walls with sketches of swashbuckling, drunken, yet amazingly lovable, fun-seeking pirates. Just down the hall, Exitensio was busy writing pirate dialogue to tie Mark's sketches together. In addition, X wrote lyrics for the now-legendary Yo-Ho of Pirate's Life for Me, and Disney composer George Bruns, best remembered for the, ba- the ballad of Davy Crockett, set them to music. For X, the spoken script was challenging. To set the mood for a show like this, he said, you had to sort of become a pirate yourself. I think my Spanish background helped me to write the exchanges between the pirate captain and the defenders of the fort. X was disappointed when he heard his script played back in full mock-up at Wed. As he and Walt walked through the scenes, he couldn't understand a word being said. Apologetically, he turned to Walt and said, Gee, I guess it's pretty hard to understand them. Walt replied, Don't worry about it. It's like a cocktail party. People come to cocktail parties and they tune in a conversation over there, then a conversation over there. Each time a guest comes through here, they'll hear something else. That'll bring them back time and time again. Meanwhile, Claude Coates began to work his magic with lighting and colors to create dramatic, exciting background for Davis's pirate characters. Claude began staging the characters in a whole series of mysterious settings, from haunted caverns to a pirate galleon and a whole Caribbean town. After Yale Gracie saw Claude's concept for a burning city, he designed a new fire effect. When the Disneyland fire marshal saw how real Yale's fire looked in the burning city, he requested the effect be programmed to shut down if a real fire alarm was set off, due to his concern that the firemen wouldn't be able to locate the real fire. Sculptor Blaine Gibson was called upon to transform Mark Davis's drawings into figures. This meant translating a two-dimensional concept into a three-dimensional reality, Plus, he had to meet the technical requirements of the audio-animatronic mouths and eyes. For Pirates of the Caribbean, Gibson had to communicate fear, drunkenness, joy, shyness, aggressiveness, and most of all, happiness in a cast of 119, 64 humans, and 55 animals. The American optical business got the largest and strangest order in its history for dozens of artificial eyes, 
all tinged with hangover bloodshot red. Sam McKinn was put in charge of designing the Pirate's Arcade, also known as the Rogue's Gallery. Walt wanted Sam to reconfigure existing arcade games into pirate-themed machines. Sam designed games with names like Freebooter Shooter, Captain Hook, and Blackbeard. Dick Nunes helped Sam build 16 machines. Sam was proudest of one particular machine, Fortune Red, a machine that stamped out pirate tokens. As mold for the token, Sam used a piece of eight coin from an ancient Spanish galleon that had sunk in the Dutch East Indies. You know, those arcade machines were played for ten cents for years. I even had some five-cent machines in there, McKim said. We were following Walt's philosophy about this. He didn't even want them to raise the price of parking, which stayed at twenty-five cents for years. He didn't mind making money off the park, but he didn't want to make money off the parking. He wanted to give the public a good deal. Yeah, I know, we all chuckled, right? Yeah. <laughs> New Orleans Square opened with a mature tree canopy, providing it instant authenticity. In 1962, Disneyland horticulturalist and landscaper Bill Evans had discovered that the city of Los Angeles was doing a remodel of Pershing Square in the downtown. He drove by and noticed there were about 30 small ficus trees at the edges of Pershing Square and another eight very large trees in the middle. This was too good of an opportunity to pass up. Bill contacted the contractor and learned they were going to box up the smaller trees to replant elsewhere and destroy the large ones. They had already destroyed one of the large trees. Evans quickly worked out a deal to acquire the remaining trees. He boxed them up and cut off the top 15 feet as required by the California Highway Patrol. <clears throat> Dang. Walt asked Evans where he was going to plant these trees. Evans had no idea, but he knew this was a good find. He suggested storing them behind the haunted mansion. Within a year, Bill Martin started on the New Orleans Square project, and the seven trees found a home. Additionally, six Italian cypress trees that had been used to delineate the entrance to Tomorrowland were moved in front of the haunted mansion when construction started on Tomorrowland in 1967. New Orleans Square opened along the banks of the Rivers of America on July 24, 1966, at a cost of $15 million. Not only was it the first new land since the park opened, it was the first time the Imagineers were challenged with creating an environment that was a representation of a specific time at a specific place, the romantic pre-Civil War New Orleans of 1850, when it was the most cosmopolitan and diverse city in the United States. On opening day, hosts Ronald Reagan and Bob Cummings referred to the New Orleans flavor at the edge of Frontierland as the famous Firehouse Five played Dixieland jazz to the guests' delight. Walt actually created Dixieland at Disneyland, which had debuted at the Carnation Plaza Gardens on October 1, 1960, and featured some big-name entertainers, including Louis Armstrong, Satchmo, was who, what Louis Armstrong was known as, was born in New Orleans, performed at Disneyland in 1961, 1962, and 1964 through 1967. 
1968, he recorded an album called Disney Songs the Satchmo Way, which brought the uniqueness of New Orleans music to Disney songs. Also, Louis Prima, who was the voice of King Louis in Jungle Book, was also born in New Orleans. New Orleans Mayor Victor Shiro participated in the dedication ceremony and announced Walt Disney had been made an honorary citizen of New Orleans. And Walt joked the addition at a cost of close to $18 million, cost as much as the original Louisiana Purchase, which more than doubled the size of the United States, and just about as much as it cost to build all of Disneyland in 1955. Walt also joked about how his New Orleans square was cleaner than the real New Orleans. A reporter for the New Orleans newspaper wrote that it's the next best thing to being there. Sadly, this is Walt Disney's last major public appearance at Disneyland before his death in December 1966. After the opening ceremonies were complete, guests wandered the streets of the land, listened to the music, and watched the entertainment. In an early press release, Disneyland proclaimed that the New Orleans of Disneyland was a city of contrasts. Magnificently gowned ladies, genteel and gracious, strolled past benign Indian squaws selling sassafras root. This is from Disney's publication. Iron lace balconies seemed even more delicate when compared with stretches of ashed walls. Intimate courtyards were lazy counterpoints to crowded markets. This new section of the park would be as exciting as a pirate treasure hunt, as colorful as a Mardi Gras ball, as memorable as a visit to the French Quarter. John Hench described New Orleans Square as Disney realism, sort of utopian in nature, where we carefully program out all the negative unwanted elements and program in the positive elements. In fact, we go even beyond realism in some cases to make a better show. The streets were much cleaner than New Orleans had ever experienced. He noted, frankly, if we ever create, if we created a totally perfect, authentic themed experience where we had complete realism, it would probably be ghastly for contemporary people. Guests could easily spend much of their day in New Orleans Square. The French market restaurant offered buffet-style dining and a terrace with live Dixieland music. It was the largest restaurant in New Orleans Square and was decorated in old brick with accents of coral and green, black iron furnishings, and a quarry tile floor, all under an antique pressed tin ceiling. The domed skylight had two tile murals portraying the ceremonies for the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. For a quick drink, the mint julep bar offered non-alcoholic mint juleps, lemonade, and fritters. For guests needing ice cream or coffee, the Sarah Lee Cafe Orleans would satisfy their craving, complete with a 19th century espresso machine acquired by Walt during a trip to Milan. At Crystal de Orleans, guests could watch the glassblower at work and purchase fine Spanish crystal and decorative glassware. The silversmith at Leaflet's silver shop made jewelry to order and performed minor repairs. Guests could purchase a hat or film at Le Chapeau's hat shop and kitchen accessories and spices from Le Gourmet. Custom stained glass and wrought iron could be found at Le Forgeron. Over at, over at Mademoiselle Antoinette's Parfumerie, guests could blend custom fragrances. 
The shop kept records so guests could return and reorder the exact fragrance they had previously selected. One of the most beautiful and ornate shops, Mademoiselle Antoinette's Parfumerie, like many of the interiors of New Orleans Square, was designed by artist Dorothea Redman, who is most famous as a set designer for Gone with the Wind. The hand-painted mirrors seen here were originals done by Dorothea in an ages-old style that involved applying details to the back of the glass one layer at a time. The antique chandelier was purchased by Walt Disney on one of his many trips to New Orleans. Walt personally wanted an antique shop in the park. The one-of-a-kind shop was meant to feel like a walk through a favorite grandmother's attic. Every square inch of the shop was covered in merchandise. Items ranging from old maps to fireplace fixtures to door knockers were available. Some of the most valuable items for sale included a Gregorian chant book from mm. 1607 and wow. old negatives of photos of the Wright brothers flying in Paris. In spite of such treasures, the store was never about making money. Its purpose was only to add a sense of authority authenticity to New Orleans Square. In what was then Frontierland, guests in the summer of 1955 could see Lafitte's Anchor, a relic from the pirate ship commanded by Jean Lafitte in the Battle of New Orleans on January 8, 1815. But as the plaque warned, don't believe everything you read. The anchor was moved to New Orleans Square along the rivers of America and given a new plaque. Other touches included tucked-away little spaces, like Le Grand Court, with its spiral staircase and ornate gas lamps. At times, an artist would be available to paint watercolor portraits. Throughout the land were carts appropriate to the period, selling flower baskets and candy, and Louisiana pralines, mints, and pecans. There was much to see in New Orleans Square at eye level, but guests could also benefit by looking up. The homes on the second floor of the buildings were each dressed to tell the story of who lived there. There are artists and musicians, and a lady preparing to host guests for afternoon tea. The mast of a ship can be seen just over the rooftops of the buildings along New Orleans Street, giving the area the feeling of a port town. But on the opening day of New Orleans Square, nobody got to see the pirates. Down below the streets, beneath all the festivity, work on the attraction continued. It would be another three weeks until the Pirate River was filled at 1.30 p.m. on Monday, October 31, mm. 1966, and one of the bateaux made its way through for the first time. The show started to come together quickly, but until the show was perfect, Walt felt no one should get to see it. Walt would pay a price for his perfectionism, though. He never saw the triumphant opening of Pirates of the Caribbean. In the spring of 1967, on April 19th, just a few months after Walt died, his greatest attraction opened in the new land of New Orleans Square. Today, as we look forward to celebrating the 60th anniversary of Disneyland, Walt's words are still ringing true. Pirates of the Caribbean continues to bring them back time and time again. Guests riding along the bayou in Pirates of the Caribbean in 1967 retreated to a peak at the newest restaurant, 
the beautiful Blue Bayou Terrace, where visitors enjoyed Southern-style delicacies as they dine in the evening all day long. <laughs> in a large show building designed to simulate perpetual nighttime, the Blue Bayou was an opportunity to dine in the shadow of an antebellum mansion along the banks of the Blue Bayou Lagoon under oak trees draped in Spanish moss. The mansion facade was a near copy of the Swift Chicken Plantation House. A balcony served as a stage for jazz and Dixieland performers. Wrought iron furnishings and candlelight seating greeted the guests. The entrance foyer along Royal Street had a terrazzo and marble patterned floor with brass inlay and paneled walls. The restaurant could seat up to 210 guests. The restaurant was considered the finest dining establishment within the park. Next door to the Blue Bayou Restaurant at 33 Royal Street, New Orleans Square, was Club 33, which opened on June 15, 1967. For many years, most guests were unaware there was a private club serving food and alcohol above Pirates of the Caribbean. Walt had not wanted to serve alcohol at the park, but in 1965, General Electric gave Walt no choice. In negotiations to sponsor the Carousel of Progress after it moved to Disneyland, the giant corporation demanded the park provide a hospitality lounge that served alcohol, similar to the one at General Electric's 1964-65 New York World's Fair Progressland Pavilion. Reluctantly, Walt agreed to build an elegant, exclusive club for very important people, a place for conversation and, in turn, a conversation piece in its own right. Walt was determined to make the best of it. According to the sales brochure promoting Club 33 memberships in 1967, Walt had wanted to create a private show within a public show, where everything from plush furnishings to crystal chandeliers, from original paintings and sketches to a personalized audio-animatronic show for members and guests only, has been chosen or specially created for Club 33. <clears throat> Membership was very limited, with the desire to create an exclusive private club service for top-level VIPs and their important guests. Reportedly, there were only 400 original members, and that number increased only slightly over the years. Club 33 members entered with a personal key card. Once inside the small lower lobby, guests were escorted by a hostess to the Victorian age French-style cage lift or an elevator. The park claimed that it is one of perhaps half a dozen that still exist in Southern California. The lift descended to Lounge Alley, which served as a cocktail lounge, art gallery, and a venue where businessmen may discuss the day's events while watching the passing parade of people. A hand-painted harpsichord was soon added. The first art display featured the work of cartoonist Heinrich Clay from Walt Disney's personal collection. The entire club was designed by artist Dorothea Redman. The banquet room was done in a Napoleonic style, Working with interior designer Emile Curie, Walt and Lillian Disney purchased many of the dining area's furnishings whilst on trips to New Orleans. 
The banquet room sat 78 guests. <clears throat> Tall French doors led out to small balconies where guests could enjoy an adult beverage whilst taking in the view of New Orleans Square and the rivers of America. The second Club 33 dining area was the Trophy Room, which was designed to be a more masculine environment, evoking the feeling of a British men's club. Forty-two guests sat at pub-like natural oak tables. On the cypress-clad walls were gifts given to Walt Disney over the years, including a stuffed mountain goat, a stuffed African antelope, native spears, masks, and a nine-foot-long solid ivory mammoth tusk. It would be other animals, an owl, two magpies, a raccoon, and a vulture that captured the attention of guests. Microphones installed in the light fixtures listened in when the tall tales are spun back and forth across the trophy room, and the audio-animatronic characters responded, just like the talented macaws in the enchanted tiki room and as talkative as mother in a general electric carousel of progress. The show was short-lived, however, as some executives felt uncomfortable with the eavesdropping capability, and the microphones and speakers were discontinued. Regrettably, Walt never got to experience the club, as it opened seven months after his death. In the 1960s, Walt began plans to create a large private apartment to be built within Disneyland. The Disney apartment, dubbed the Royal Suite, was meant to be a private space used by the Disney family or special guests. The apartment is attached to Club 33. The lavish suite was to be built above the Pirates of the Caribbean, but was not completed due to Walt Disney's death in 1966. The composition and concepts for the space's interior were also done by Dorothea Redman. French-inspired ironwork incorporated hidden names and initials are prominent features on the gates and balconies of historic New Orleans. Disneyland's New Orleans Square follows suit with similar decorative details. Walt and Roy Disney's initials are hidden in a decorative iron railing on the Disney apartment. The initials were highlighted in gold during the creation of the Disney Dream Suite in 2008. It is impossible to celebrate the 60th anniversary of Disneyland without celebrating the man who started it all. I began this episode of 60 Years of Disneyland recounting the days leading up to the passing of Walt Disney. I want to conclude with the words television journalist Eric Severide said on the CBS Evening News on December 15, 1966, to express the feelings of most Americans over their loss. It would take more time than anybody has around the daily news shops to think of the right things to say about Disney. He was an original, not just an American original, but an original, period. He was a happy accident, one of the happiest this century has experienced. And judging by the way it's behaving, in spite of all Disney tried to tell it about laughter, love, children, puppies and sunrises, this century, century hardly deserved him. He probably did more to heal or at least soothe troubled human spirits than all the psychiatrists in the world. <laughs> there can't be many adults in the allegedly civilized parts of the globe who did not inhabit Disney's mind and imagination for at least a few hours and feel better for the visitation. It may be true, as somebody said, 
that while there is no highbrow in lowbrow, there is some lowbrow in every highbrow. But what Disney seemed to know was that while there is very little grown-up in every child, there is a lot of child in every grown-up. To a child, this weary world is brand new, all gift-wrapped. Disney tried to keep it that way for adults. By the conventional wisdom, mighty mice, flying elephants, Snow White and Happy, Grumpy, Sneezy, and Doc, all these were fantasy, escapism from reality. It's a question of whether they are any less real, any more fantastic than intercontinental missiles, poisoned air, defoliated forests, and scrap iron on the moon. This is the age of fantasy, however you look at it. But Disney's fantasy wasn't lethal. People are saying we'll never see his like again. To learn more about Walt Disney and his Imagineers who created the magic we enjoy, consider these books and magazines that served as some of my source material for this episode. An American Original, Walt Disney, by Bob Thomas. Disneyland, The Nickel Tour, by Bruce Gordon and David Mumford. Disneyland, The Inside Story, by Randy Bright. The Disneyland Story, The Unofficial Guide to the Evolution of Walt's Dreams, by Sam Genoway. The E-Ticket Magazine, available at the Walt Disney Family Museum. Finally, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by Walt Disney. Happy 60th anniversary, Uncle Walt. Thank you, Michael. That is going to do it for this segment of the Dis Unplugged. Be sure to catch all of our other Disneyland shows this week. And of course, we will be back again with you next week. Until then, remember, Disneyland is all more magical, but it's shared. Thanks for listening.